This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele on 101.9 High FM. A very good evening to all and welcome to tonight's installment of uh, Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Mbele. I'm delighted to be once again sharing this space and time with you as we continue to discuss issues of national importance. Before I get to the gist of tonight's conversation, as always, let's us pay homage to those who came before us. On this note, let me say thanks to Kathy, Simon, David, and Sina. Uh, and I think they have done a sterling work, and they kept you glued on your radios and given them the support, um, as you always do. Um, moving forward, I if you have missed our conversation last week, I implore you to visit our website, download the website, and tell me exactly what your thoughts are. Our SMS line is 34519. The telegram is 061 And of course, you want to drop me an email, I'll be more than happy to take your, your email uh, via uh, the, you know, the email account, which is nimrod at hide.co.za. Um, as I know, we often like to reflect slightly back on what really stood out. Um, but perhaps maybe we get to some of the critical issues, I think it's important for us just to have a reflecting moment on the late, the passing of the late, uh, uh, Joseph Shabalala. I think, you know, uh, well, he's, may his soul rest in peace for starters. And secondly, uh, we need to pay tribute to him for really putting South African music to the global map. And, and I hope, uh, the new, the, the, the next generation of musicians have certainly took the baton from him and they are about to make us proud on a global scale. On a much more, uh, serious note, I want to reflect slightly on the debacle that you've seen recently, uh, by way of, uh, the pron- pronouncement by the, the business rescue Les Martin as well as if you were uh, when they cancelled the flights at SAA. And that sparked a whole lot of contestation. Um, even the president had to be brought in because he himself was not too happy about some of the cancellations uh, or some of the routes which were deemed not profitable. I think the issue at hand, one, is finding that fine balance because the business rescue practitioner's job is to promote what is in the best interest of the company by way of looking at financials and making sure that the business is run profitably and all the inefficiencies have been, uh, have been attended to. And I would imagine some of the f- uh, routes that were cancelled made business sense. But what made business sense for, from, from business rescue point of view does not necessarily make business sense uh, from a government point of view. And, and I suppose the two, and the two parties need to sit down to reflect on real issues. But my take on this kind of quagmire is the fact that you really have to understand that business imperatives, you also have to understand the political imperatives. And the two don't often speak to each other. Governments, I understand the government's role, uh, as from a shareholding point of view, because they have the vested interest in ensuring that, uh, SAE comes around, despite the fact that we all know that, uh, since I think over the past 20 years, they must have lost close to about 20 billion rands or so, uh, through, uh, uh, uh you know, through a number of turnaround strategies and so on and so forth. But you also have to understand that government has vested interest in ensuring that it, it, it promotes promotes political relevance and promotes jobs uh, 
Um, so, so ultimately, it's very important for both parties to sit down and make a clearer determination. And let's just see what's going to happen. Moving very quickly, we are approaching the sauna. Um, everybody, some people are very excited, some are not so excited. Um, you know, in the context of the economy, that has not, that has not grown. Practically, we are, we have sort of even out. Our unemployment is reaching, what, 40% if you use a, a broader definition of unemployment. And surely this is a very difficult task for the president. If you recall the president's last year state of the nation, there's certain things that he made pronouncement on. And obviously we would want to see more of a reflection on that. ESCOM, for an example, he made it, uh, he, he pointed out that, you know, it will be split into three uh, units. That is transmission, distribution and generation. How far are we in the respect of that? Uh, the president also spoke about, you know, uh, eradication of pit latrines in schools which is a very important issue. We have heard very unpleasant stories about kids falling in, 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 in those uh, horrible toilets. The question is, how far is the president in relation to eradication of, of pit latrines? The other issue that um, the president made, you know, reflected on, which we want to see maybe a, a feedback, is the, the, the progress thus far insofar as as on the commission on, on, on state uh, capture, uh, where is the NPA so far? What is the progress? How many cases um, have been handled? How many people have been investigated? And, and is there an end at the end of the tunnel? So those are some of the questions that I would imagine ordinary South Africans are quite keen to hear. A report back from the president uh, from the state of the nation's uh, point of view. If you have just joined us, Please uh, weigh in on our conversation tonight. Our SMS line is 34519. The telegram is 0618951019. Tonight, um, I've got a very special guest. Uh, her name is Pami Natterson. She is the CEO of IOD South Africa. And we're talking everything around governance. Uh, let me take this opportunity to welcome uh, Pami. Thank you, Nimrod. And evening listeners. How are you, ma'am? Very well, and you? I'm very excited to have you around. I'm uh, happy to be here. For the record, I've been your I've been your fan. I've been your member for a very long time, and hopefully, after this conversation, I'm going to renew my membership. That's wonderful. I'll try my best to convince you during this interview, Nimrod. No, no, thank you very much for coming through. Uh, well done, um, Pami. Perhaps maybe setting the scene around governance issues. IOD South Africa is a custodian, or obviously it provided, you know, overarching custodianship, if you like, around governance issues in the country. But when you juxtapose what we have seen uh, in the state capture, uh, what you've seen around uh, 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 Mackenzie's stories, KPMU's stories, what does it say about governance in the country? Sure. So I think, you know, firstly, let me just set the scene. The Institute of Directors is a voluntary professional body for directors in South Africa. Very similar to the way other professions have a membership body to which they belong. The difference between us and others is we are obviously voluntary. So there's no rule around requiring directors to be members of the Institute in order to serve as a director. In addition to um, being the professional body for directors, we're also what we call the promoters of good corporate governance in South Africa. 
So we convened the King Committee and we own the the King Codes and Reports in South Africa, which are benchmark for good governance um, in our country. So, yes, then the question is asked, you know, so how do the things that we've seen happen, happen? And and I guess we have to reflect for ourselves, and it goes beyond just governance and King 4. We have a great constitution in our country. We have great laws in our country. We have a world-class governance code in our country that's recognized internationally. But at the end of the day, we're dealing with human beings and no law, rule, code, standard can stop someone from doing something wrong if that's what they choose to do. And, and you know, that's the bottom line for us. It's a, a voluntary body like ours can can be outspoken, we can promote good corporate governance, we can influence policy wherever we can, we can try to influence our membership base. But at the end of the day, if someone chooses to do something, they will do that. Thank you very much for that um, uh, outline, uh, Pabi. But here's a a question as a follow-up, perhaps, maybe. Yes, you are a voluntary organization, um, which which means there's no legal... uh, Enforcement on you. You don't have that legal authority. Um, but I would imagine using the constitution, using King Code and using, uh, Companies Act, for an example, as a baseline through which you are able to, um, you know, promote what you do or promote, um, ethical conduct. What do you think are some of the issues, uh, um, that you think South Africans corporate space had to deal with in, in, in shifting that rule? That needle uh, from being a non-compliant, uh, you know, com- uh, environment to more of a compliant. Bearing in mind that, of course, you you are voluntary-based organization. I think the first thing is it's our role to spread awareness around what corporate governance actually is, and it's less about compliance. So people often think there's this burdensome compliance exercise where people need to go and put in a whole lot of policies and processes and structures and a- appoint people. To have good governance. But if you look at the definition of corporate governance in King 4, it says corporate governance is about ethical and effective leadership. So if you take it away from the compliance ticks, tick box things and sit back and say, okay, if corporate governance is about ethical and effective leadership, and if we start spreading that message amongst our members, the delegates who come to our training, and even wider than that, within society, if we are vocal in the media um, and in various platforms on the need for ethical and effective leadership in this country, I think we will go a long way um, towards improving things. I couldn't agree with you more. But but here's another challenge that, that I, I've noticed. Yes, um, ethics and ethical leadership is a critical component of King Codes, right? And on the, on, I mean, based on what you've seen, the avalanche of Malfeasance, the avalanche of non-compliance, avalanche of corruption, maladministration—you name it—presuppose that as a country, um, you can't judge us based on us being a trailblazer in so far as articulating those kinds of codes. You have to judge us on a basis of application. There's obviously a gap between pronouncement or intention and action. What what are you think are some of the fundamental reasons behind? This, um, how can I put this huge uh, vacuum of ethical leadership? 
So there's probably a number of things. One could be a lack of understanding. You know, how many directors out there in the big entities are are members of the institute are exposed to our guidance and thought leadership, attend our events, you know, listen to to what we have to say and that, and that kind of thing. So I think uh, lack of understanding is one thing. Uh, the other is just, uh, you know, bad intent. Uh, and that's what I spoke to earlier. Um, you know, if someone really wants to do something wrong, no piece of legislation or code can stop them. I think another critical thing for me is is consequence. Um, you know, it often comes up in our, in our sessions and roundtables that there's a general, people sense that there's a general lack of, um, consequence for certain behavior. So people may, um, not perform on a board and they get removed from that board. And then a little while later, you see them serving on another board, board elsewhere. And then, you know, people sit back and say, members of the general public, our members even sit back and say, okay, but, Where's the consequence for, for what's just happened? Um, you know, recently I'm, I'm glad to see that there are more cases of, uh, potential director delinquency happening. And the Institute of Directors actually gave, um, commentary and, um, expert affidavit for two of these high profile cases of director delinquency, um, in the last couple of months. And I think that's really, if we, if we take it forward, that's going to be the real um, example of, you know, where there's a real consequence to an individual for, and we're not talking about, you know, business is about taking risks. So sometimes things do go wrong. You as a director make, make a decision that doesn't work out. And that's why also in the Companies Act, we have the business judgment rule, which, which is a bit of a protection for directors that says, you know, did you, did you take, uh, ask all the right questions, have all the right information. Did you have a rational reason for making the decision you made? Um, were, did you ensure you weren't conflicted, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Um, having said that, people still need to be held to account for things like willful misconduct, gross negligence, uh, abuse of power, etc. And, and and those are the things where we need to see some real consequences going forward. I, I think I'm quite fascinated by. Articulation of those kind of variables. Perhaps maybe let's unpack each of those. Lack of understanding. I would imagine as an institute, directors who come to the fore, especially those who are inexperienced. Um, obviously, if you are not experienced, there's got to be some form of capacity building that is associated with your tenure or that is associated with your appointment. I would imagine this is where you you are playing a critical role by way of providing those 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 programs. Um how effective are these programs aimed at securing greater understanding and elevating uh the consciousness and the risk involved um as a as a board member? I think they definitely are effective. And in 2019 alone, we trained about over 6,500 individuals, either directors or aspiring directors. And you can see the difference of those individuals in the classes. Um, and the feedback we get is very positive. And, and we ask not only were you satisfied with the training, but do you believe that after this training you would be able to be a better director? And the feedback on that is always positive. I guess the, the, the challenge is around the, the people who we are not seeing. Um, so there's a, you know, many people, many directors and uh, prospective directors out there who may not be members of the institute and may not be coming to our, our training. 
Um, you know, often with these things, it's also about an individual for themselves realizing that if you want to be a director, you should belong to the professional body that, that represents directors and you should keep up to date with what's going on in the director landscape. And that's almost a self awareness thing of saying, just because I serve on boards doesn't mean I know everything. I still need to keep, keep myself up to date. I, st- I still need to do the work. Interesting. Uh, part of the, 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 I think the bridging the understanding, I would imagine there's there's more traction. Uh, you see more and more people coming in. You see more and more people acting diligently um, because you can't put a person, uh, you know, at that level of authority and don't provide support. But in your experience, how often do you have you come across environments where directors, uh, you know, uh, been or people have been put in those positions without skills, competencies, or experience. And do they know the consequences of that kind of standing? I think it, it definitely happens. And the IOD is quite vocal around the nominations process and appointment process of directors, both in the private and public sectors, let, let me add. Um, you know, there's a sense that, that if there's a vacancy on a board in the private sector, it's very much in terms of who knows who, you know, we've got a vacancy. Do you know somebody? Let's, let's invite them on. In the public sector, on the other hand, we know it's pretty much in the hands of the sole shareholder, which is government, to appoint the members of the board. I think there's a couple of things um, there. The one is most other professions, there's, there's a standard to which people are held. So in order to practice as a medical doctor, you would have needed to have studied something. You would have needed to have passed some exams. You would need to belong to an association. You would need to have a certain title. You would need to maintain CPD in your field and keep up to date. With directorship, anyone can be a director. And I think that that's, that's for me where we start is there's no requirement for people to have necessary skills to be tested, etc. And that's why we at the Institute have introduced two director designations because we believe directorship is a profession like any other profession. And we believe in the long term, and yes, it's still early days with our designations, but in the long term, people should be appointing directors to boards who are chartered directors or who are certified directors because that tells you that they've gone through a process, they've met certain entry criteria, they've passed certain exams or assessments, um, and they maintain CPD. And also, importantly, is they're held to a code of conduct, and their title or designation can be removed if they infringe that code of conduct. Very important. I think uh, another thing often neglected is due diligence on appointments of directors. So when you, if you were going to appoint someone into your organization as an employee, generally you'd have all sorts of testing. They would do psychometric testing. They would do technical uh, assessments on the actual um, job spec. They would potentially do background checks, criminal checks, qualification checks, all sorts of checks before appointing that individual. I don't necessarily see that happening in depth when appointing a board member. And if you think about how critical a role a non-executive director plays, um, it, we really need to be getting more into doing proper due diligences on these directors and making sure that when we appoint someone, we are confident that they're going to be able to deliver in that role.
On the note of due diligence, let's take a break. We'll come back. But as we reflect on the issue, when you come back, I want to hear more about the kind of process that IOD, you know, prescribe to ensure that people who come on board a thorough background check has been conducted. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, I'm in, joined in studio by Pami Natchison, who is the CEO of IAD South Africa. We're talking everything about corporate governance. Before we went to the break, the question that I wanted Pami uh, to reflect on is the notion of the due diligence, um, which is such a critical component of ensuring credibility of boards uh, without conducting proper and grounded due diligence, uh, the chances of securing uh, directors that do not meet the requirements are quite high. Uh, perhaps maybe you could just take us through your process in terms of your due diligence and the extent to which it really makes a difference in the performance of the, of the board. I think it makes an immense difference. And we actually put out a paper on director due diligence and, and had various events with our members to try to raise awareness. So what you're doing when you're appointing directors is you're trying to have a collective base of knowledge, skills, experience, diversity, all of these factors. And and if you're not very conscious of that and, and, and deliberately filling positions with certain skills, with certain experience, with certain traits with certain um, characteristics, with certain diversity uh, groupings, etc., you probably won't has, have as effective a board um, to deliver. I think, you know, it, it's, 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 it's something that both the private sector and public sector needs to, to ponder on. An important aspect, although, to due diligence is also uh, that it works both ways, and I often find that's neglected. Where, if you say the organization must do, do various checks and ensure that they are appointing the correct person, it's, it's very easy to understand and, and kind of common sense for people. But when, when I say, but you as an individual also need to do a due diligence on that organization before you accept an appointment, people get a little bit surprised. And I think directorship, serving as a non-executive director, has become something that's sought after. Uh, it's become, you know, a, a sexy thing that everybody wants to be a non-executive director. Um, that people may accept a role without really applying their minds to a number of things, whether they can add value to that board, uh, whether they they are f- fitting in a certain skill that the board needs, um, and 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 other things like whether the values of that organization align to the values of the individual. I think we mustn't downplay the impact that joining the wrong board can have on an individual's reputation. I'm I'm, I'm glad you raised the last point around the risk because my experience is that most people who are brought into boards they don't understand the inherent risk of becoming a board member. What are the liabilities? That you are likely to experience in your own personal capacity should, should the board found wanting. What has been your experience in understanding that this kind of risk that, that people, you know, decide to overlook, uh, because it is sexy to be a board member, but without really taking into account what are the, what are your fiduciary responsibilities? As a board member and what happens in an event that, um, some of your resolutions were, were, were not 
in the best interest of the company? Um, yeah, a, a very, very valid point that you raised there is there is a lack of understanding. So obviously we in our training and, and through our thought leadership, um, m- you know, make it clear to our members and our delegates um, what their duties are as a director and, and how to fulfill them and, and kind of the do's and the don'ts of, of being a director. But people out there, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know kind of thing. And, and that's where we also try to spread awareness more widely in the media um, and, and, and other forms. Um, for me, it's about, you know, being a director, it's not an, it's not an, a cushy job. It's not something that you do to go to four meetings a year to earn a fee. Um, it's a huge responsibility and, um, it's, there's, there's risk involved. There's potential liability involved. If you, if you, if you see the di- director delinquency cases that I, that I spoke about earlier is these people, if they are found guilty, could be prevented from serving on boards uh, again. And, and so that's not to be taken lightly. And I think any person out there who serves on a board or intends to serve on a board, would be wise to get the training and, and understand the risks they're taking. Thank you very much for that point that you, that, which I think is quite invaluable. But one of the risks that I have noticed, perhaps you could just share your thoughts around, is issue of fronting, um, and getting people to, to assume certain role purely because you want to win a dress. How prevalent, um, based on your experience, coming from IODSA, are we on a decline on, on fronting issues or are we increasing? I think it's a difficult uh, question to answer because, because I, I, you know, it's difficult to, to kind of know from the outside whether people are honestly being appointed for the right reasons. Um, I think when you see the kind of lack of success, for, for want of a better word, um, and especially when you when you see what's happening in the public sector, um, you also have to ask yourself whether people are appointed for their skills, knowledge, experience, and what they can add to the board and how they can take the company forward, or whether they are appointed for political reasons or or you know um, in order for government to have a bigger influence over what happens in that in that company. But my my sense is that you know issue fronting actually cuts across. Um, and in private sector, we have. Incidents or you know, instances where fronting um, is quite rife uh, for reasons that 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 are pretty obvious. You know, uh, you either want to have you want to surround yourself by yes men because you know, or you, you you're simply not transformating. You know, so based on your based on your experience, um, yes, you may not obviously this this is probably going to be anecdotal. Mm-hmm. Um, are we really moving the needle up from an ethical? Leadership point of view, which you deliberated on when we started, that you know one of the critical area around governance is that of ethics and ethical leadership. The extent to which there is this high level consciousness that you know having a board, it's you know it's something that is in the best interest of the company uh, in the long term, and having fit for purpose, it's even even better. But issues of fronting. How do they, you know, how do we address them? So I must say, I am fairly positive in the constituencies that I deal with. So our members and our, and our delegates and our stakeholders that, that there is that consciousness that, that people generally want to do the right thing. 
Um, how we deal with fronting, so how, how do we deal with people making appointments for the wrong reasons, is we as stakeholders of those organizations should speak up. We should not, it should not be okay. So we should not let it slide. Um, you know, and yeah, you know, as I said earlier, if someone really wants to do, to do the wrong thing, they'll do the wrong thing. Either way. Either way. But it's about us as a collective ecosystem of stakeholders in this, in this governance, um, arena to, you know, if, if enough of us stand together and say we want the right thing to be done, then eventually people will have to listen. Okay. One of the things that I've picked up as, as I'm going to bring in Eric, who've just joined us now, is the board evaluation, which is such an incred- um, critical aspect of credibility um, that your board has gone through an assessment. The, 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 the board members are in tune and the gaps that have been identified are, are been properly plugged. But my experience is that most boards, the evaluation is never done at all. Uh, you know, and why is it that uh, shareholders are not aware of the risk of not um, conducting those kind of evaluation internally and externally? Because there's no validation of the performance of the board when uh, we did not get, say, for an example, Eric Stillerman to come and assess the board and say, this board remains fit and proper. Um, you know, the due diligence has been done. Uh, why, where are we in, in that space of getting everybody to understand the risk or the importance of board evaluation? So I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, the Institute of Directors has been conducting board evaluations since about 2009. Um, but we don't do that many. It, it's not something that every company is coming to get a board evaluation done. And, and I know there are many consultants who do board evaluations as well. But between us um, and all the consultants, I don't think we're touching the majority of entities um, in South Africa. And I think it's important. Uh, and I agree with you. That's where also the shareholders come in in terms of, you know, asking questions at the AGMs. Um but coming back to also fronting and sort of window dressing is perhaps they are saying the right things, putting the right things in their reports that make people think they're doing the board evaluations. Perhaps they're doing it internally. Um, you know, my question always around board evaluations is why are you doing it? You shouldn't be doing it because King says so um, to tick a box and say we've done it. If you're not then going to follow up with, real action plans to improve that board year on year. So it's always interesting for me to see if we've evaluated a board two years ago and I go in now, what difference has, has, have I seen in over that two-year period? If you're still sitting with the findings that I saw two years ago, then I'm going to ask myself, why did you really do this, this even, board evaluation? Even worse, what happens when, because the board assessment was not done, um, there are issues of material that could have been identified in advance and, and, you know, uh, you know, you, uh, we would have failed to address those to a point where some of the directors would have seen, would have behaved unethically, uh, to a point where, um, you know, proper process have to be brought into place in terms of remedial action. Mm. I think it's a missed opportunity to fix things. And to improve and, and you know, even the boards who are doing well, who are fulfilling their duties, there are always areas to do even better. Cause, you know, as I said before, the, the board is there. So the, sh- the shareholders hold shares in, in a company, but they appoint a board to look after that organization and, and to make sure that that company survives and thrives. And 
if they, the board, are not functioning, then it goes kind of hand in hand with the company will suffer and, and then the stakeholders at the end of the day suffer. But on the other hand, um, we have boards that are well established uh, with seasoned uh, expertise. You're talking accountant, you could talk in lawyers, you're talking everybody. And they still want founding. A typical example brings Stanov. I want to bring Eric on that point, um, if you may, because the, the, the issue at hand is not so much about skill sets. You know, it's about um, serving or acting in the best interest of the company. We've had so many companies or so many instances where uh, duly comp- uh, you know, uh, comprised boards being being uh, being unable to execute their mandate purely because. Um, Eric brought me in here, and I can't say no. Uh, Stanov basically is a classical example. Your, your take on oh, that? Thank Eric. you. Good evening. Hi. Um, been listening on the radio and, and in here already. Um, so I'm a little bit uh, going to give a different perspective. Uh, as a chartered accountant, I kind of learned the Companies Act and the roles and duties of directors. <coughs> And uh, what, uh, sorry, I, I didn't get your name? Palmy. Palmy. But what you were saying, Palmy, about um, standards of directors and qualifications and knowledge and awareness of responsibilities and potential liability, etc. cetera. Um, and now you're talking, Nimrod, about evaluation of boards. There's nothing of that, hardly any of that in the Companies Act. So, so... You, you've got a, a huge difference between what the law requires <coughs> and what you're saying the IOD um, and the ideal standards are that you that you're discussing this evening. And I think the discussion could could kind of maybe give a few minutes to understanding how the um, philosophy that you're advocating here and that IOD represents can actually make inroads to the broader um, body of, of body corporate of South Africa. And, 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 and in fact, I'm thinking there are around 2 million to 3 million entities in this country, small businesses registered uh, with, with uh, the, the, the SIPSI um, and who have to either appoint directors or, um, or owner directors or owner uh, 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 managers of, of businesses and, and, and undertake that responsibility or appoint somebody to do it. And the law is quite clear on that. Every AGM, you can appoint a new director and you can fire them and you assess them as a shareholder in terms of their performance, in terms of what your interests are. So you get small business. And then you get medium, then you get corporates, which in a way is, is, is the, the, the domain that you guys are talking about. It's, it's much more appropriate with the whole agency split between a directorship and ownership is, 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 is clear. Um, and then of course you get the political domain of state owned entities, which we discuss almost every week. And, you know, the, the kind of responsibility that you, Delegating to to uh, directors of ESCOM and SAA and whatever. So I, I, I'm wondering if we can have a little bit of a discussion about the application, or how we can reconcile the kind of model that you con- that you're talking about here to the reality of all the 
um, variations of, of entities out there. Okay. Before um, I, I may respond to that, let me, let me give you my thoughts, uh, Eric. Firstly, it, it, it is immaterial of the size of your organization. Principle remains principle. Mm. Whether you're a small, medium, or large, it doesn't really matter. Um, but here's another important thing for me is that when you embrace good governance practices, mm. because you're in business to grow, isn't it? Mm-hmm. At some point, you are going to want to crowd in an investment. You can't crowd in investment or bring people into your business until or unless you have gone, you, you have, you have demonstrated your ability to, to, to maintain good standards, which by definition could be, you know, applied, could be looked at, uh, you know, uh, looked through King or, you know, even the company's act and sort of so. So it's a principal issue for, for me, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter when you're small, big, because ultimately mm-hmm. you can't, you can't get so big because most of the companies that I've known mm-hmm. who've started small, owner, manager, they, they can't grow because they have not really applied themselves, uh, uh, uh in respect to good practices of governance. I don't know. Maybe, uh, Pemi might have a different view, but that, for me, it's also about principle. You start with principle, the application comes something else. I, I agree. And, and if we go back to my earlier statement that corporate governance is about ethical and effective leadership. And so which organization, be it a small company, a nonprofit, a school, a body corporate can say corporate governance is not for us because at the end of the day, it's about ethical and effective leadership. What is important, though, is to make it fit for purpose. So the principles remain the principles. But the application of practices within that organization can be proportionately adjusted to make it fit for purpose for that organization. And we're very vocal on this. I mean, we've got a guide out on for small business on corporate governance and saying the very thing that you're saying is you may be small now, but if you want to pitch yourself to, to grow into one of the giants one day, you need to start now and grow your governance maturity as your business um, grows. If we can get back to your question around um, the big giants like like Steinoff and, and what went wrong. So, yes, you can have all the skills around the table. But if you don't have a certain level of independence and professional skepticism around the table, management can still hide things from you. And it's about having that inquiring mind and asking the right questions and not only questioning what's in the pack, but questioning what's not in the pack. Mm. Um, that's yeah. so important. Yeah. I like that questioning. <laughs> you yeah. all get this, this board pricks, but yes. you don't question what is not there. But again, um, if you are not technically inclined, you won't even know the difference. Mm. Um, well, what's your take on that? Uh, 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 sorry, I must just go back to the point of reconciling. Mm-hmm. The law, the Companies Act requirements of directors, which are no, nowhere near as elaborate as, as you're describing here with IOD. And I'm saying if you really want to improve directorship broad-based in the country, then how do you actually get the principles and practices that you're advocating into the broader domain of, of companies and state-owned entities, etc.? In other words, to go beyond – right now it's voluntary – uh, the, the principles that you're talking about are essentially voluntary. Uh, the stock exchange may have a particular set of requirements that insist uh, uh, by stock exchange regulation that you have to comply. They, they, we know that, you know, in terms of standards of reporting, etc. Um, 
so I'm just asking you how you can get the teeth of uh, the directorship um, principles you're talking about, improved governance, to spread more widely uh, uh, and and take effect. You know, does it does it mean can you go to Parliament and get the Companies Act change? Is it even de- desirable to change the Companies Act to say in order to be a, a, a director? You need to have passed the directorship exam and you need to submit yourself to an annual evaluation. Is that realistic? Would Parliament ever entertain that? Is it part of the philosophy that the, the Companies Act was based on? Um, I think so. You know, if you look at governance over the years, there were, there were things written into King II back in the day. Mm that made their way into the Companies Act revision oh, in 2008, oh, right. including, for example, the section on audit committees in oh, right, Chapter right, sure. 3, I think it is, okay. of the Companies Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we're on the right track, but we also can't hold ourselves back and, and wait for the for the legislation because changing legislation is a, is a long, tedious process. So what, you know, in the meantime, we have King 4. It exists. At no point do we expect that King 4 is going to be in legislation because the governance code is also intended differently to, mm. to what legislation is. But having said that, certain aspects of the code, I have no doubt, will eventually make their way into legislation. In terms of the teeth, though, um, I'm not a lawyer. Right. But but I, I obviously, you know, in my in my circles, speak with a lot of lawyers and company law experts, and I'm told that more and more in assessing directors and whether they fulfill their duties in terms of the Companies Act and even in terms of the common law, King 4 is used as a basis for assessing whether they were acting as reasonable directors. Mm-hmm. So so the courts are already looking back to, to King 4, even though it's not part of our legislation in South Africa. Yes, I'm with you. I couldn't agree with you more because when you look at the, when you dis- dissect all the principles, for an example, um, principle one being uh, effective and, and ethical leadership. Mm-hmm. So when there are issues of, of compliance or non-compliance, the question would be, did you act in the best interest of the com- organization? Mm-hmm. Um, you would have expected you as a director to, to have, to have been reasonably uh, aware of your fiduciary responsibility, which comes back to her point that the, these principles, when you look at them, all of them, they may not necessarily um, uh, reflected in the in the Companies Act per se, but but th- there's a very strong correlation, you know, in terms of what what the spirit of the codes are and the spirits of the law. Perhaps maybe the application might be might be t- different, but the spirit. Of uh, King Four and that of the law, um, it's pretty much the same. A- am, am I correct to interpret Agreed. that way? Agreed. Yes. Yeah, I, I won't labour that point. Uh, let me rather take it from a different angle, if I may. What What are you really doing as an institution, as IOD, to popularise and spread the word and and improve, uh, you know, standards of 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 actual practice of governance? In, in, in entities around, you know, the, the economy. Yeah, so, you know, we, firstly, we have 9,400 and we ended on 9,424 mm-hmm. members last year. So we obviously have influence over our members mm-hmm. and how they behave and what they do out there. Right. We then train people. We trained over 6,500 delegates mm-hmm. in, in good governance. So, yeah. you know, 
um, in terms of how they should be practicing it and, and, you know, in terms of ethical and effective leadership and, 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 and all of that. I think wider than that, we also have a duty to educate outside of the people that we, that we interact with on a daily basis. And that's where things like this, like engaging um, on media channels, being vocal with media releases, whenever we see something topical happening in governance and, uh, um, you know, in, in, in corporates around boards, we are vocal about it in the media and in mm. the public space because mm-hmm. um, that's key for me in terms of spreading the awareness of good corporate governance wider than just our membership um, database. And, and I would imagine, again, to challenge you a little bit there, you know, that those nine and a half thousand people, board, uh, directors, are, I would, you know, venture a guess that they mainly uh, are represented on boards of, of, of major entities, of, of listed companies. Because I would imagine just from, uh, you know, the, the, the scale and size of the kind of companies that can engage them and that have those kind of requirements in terms of the stock exchange, that they would, you know, those were, that's, it's almost like, in a way, a, a, a domain, an ecosystem on its own, listed company IOD. Just let's tackle it from a state-owned entity point of view, for example. Like, when I submitted my papers to be on the board, um, on the on the database of uh, state-owned entities boards, all the verification you were talking about earlier, about verification qualifications and all of that, they do that. You know, in terms of recruitment procedures, and they follow that quite strictly. Um, and I'm also aware uh, that that state-owned entities will put their new directors through a board course, and I would imagine that the IOD is involved in that. So, is a short orientation course, um, you know, sufficient or, or, or measuring up to the needs when you look at the disaster? Of, of how so many of those entities have collapsed and failed. And let's, let's like put it in context of the reality in terms of what's happening out there. Can something better be done? I, I certainly don't think that this is a once-off fix to a problem. It's not something we can just put a plaster on yeah. and fix. I, I, I think it's a much bigger issue. So it stems from appointments, as you mentioned, and we're very vocal about that, about appointments in public sector boards and whether they are influenced by people who have the skills, knowledge, experience, etc. to serve or whether they are influenced by political uh, sure. motives. Sure. Um, in terms of ongoing learning, it's about, you know, it's no point going to one uh, training course. It's about be a member of the body that represents directors, keep up to date, read their thought leadership, read their guidance, come to their events, listen to what they're saying you should be doing. Keep up with CPD, very important. Mm. Um, and then behave, practice what you are hearing, sh- you know, should happen is, is critical for me. Absolutely. Look, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We are literally left with, uh, yeah. um, you know, 20, 20 seconds to wrap up. Uh, perhaps maybe let me take this opportunity to thank you once again, uh, Pami uh, Nettison, who is a CEO of Institute of South Africa, Institute of, Institute of Directors SA, and of course, um, regular voice, uh, Mr. Eric Stillman, who is the CEO of Net Growth and, and uh, as well as uh, London, uh, London's Business School Online. Um, I suppose we, 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 we have to go beyond just once off kind of arrangement and get to a point where good governance is, is culturized 
you know, institutionalized. And that can only be done if, you know, the consequence management is also followed. Because most of this time we don't get to see, we, we get, the, we have avalanche of legislation and practice is not as, 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 as rigor as it should be. And where there's been uh, mistakes, we don't really get to see um, what happens to those. And patiently with time and with your involvement, you could influence the legislation um, such that, you know, consequence management is also seen as important and people are not, are not recycled. You can't make a booby here and we take you from this entity to put you to that entity, uh, and which makes a mockery of the due diligence that we've spoken about, which makes a mockery of the inherent risk um, that are involved in your in your in the space. Unfortunately, we're going to leave it there. Once again, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nimrod. Eric, thank Thanks, you very Nimrod. much for coming through. Thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure. Let's do this again next week.